This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. today's episode, John is joined by Avi Loeb. Avi Loeb is the former chair of the Astronomy Department at Harvard University, founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative and director of the Institute for Theory and Computation at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He also chairs the board on physics and astronomy at the National Academies and the advisory board for the Breakthrough Starshot Project. He is a member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Loeb is the best-selling author of Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Event Horizon and my channel are now available as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube memberships. Early ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and sleep-focused content. More on that later in the video. Dr. Loeb, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, Doctor, the Galileo Project it continues to grow and form up and uh, gain members from a very diverse crowd, which includes both scientists, eminent scientists, Brian Keating, Paul Davies, many others, and then also people from the ufology community, Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon, who's former Deputy Secretary of Defense for the United States. And so it's 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 getting it's it's healthy, it seems so far. Now, what are you guys talking about? Now are you planning the cameras and the, you know, what exact how to exactly look for UAP? Well, let me first say that uh, my philosophy is to have uh, a wide tent that includes uh, people with a diverse range of expertise. That includes uh, people that uh, have gained knowledge um, while uh, studying the subject for many years or decades in different service positions and including in the government. But we are not interested in any classified data. 
So that's one of the guiding principles of the project. We want to conduct scientific work that is based on new data that we collect with a new set of telescopes that we assemble and we have full control over so that we know exactly what we are doing and that we analyze in a transparent way. So we have no interest in using all data that was partly classified. But on the other hand, there are a number of people that have good ideas about where to put the telescope systems and what kind of um, implications, if we do get interesting data, what kind of implications uh, such data would have in terms of the public, the society, and uh, we can benefit from their wisdom. And uh, we include also Michael Shermer, who is a skeptic in the tent, the white tent that I uh, established. And the reason is that we will be guided by scientific evidence. So irrespective of what uh, the opinions of individuals are, the whole idea about scientific research is that once you have strong enough evidence, everyone would be convinced. And so if the evidence is inconclusive, you can be a skeptic. But once the evidence is conclusive, that will convince even the skeptic. That's the beauty of science. And vice versa, if we don't find anything, we are establishing a fishing expedition. And we might find only sardines. These are fish that are not particularly interesting. So be it. We will just report about that. And um, we will basically clarify that we haven't found anything unusual. And of course, we need a large enough number of telescope systems so that we cover enough of the sky and have a good chance of finding something. And the other thing I wanted to mention is there is this story about a fisherman that uh, after spending several months in the sea, came back and said that he discovered a new law of nature. And that law of nature is all fish are bigger than two inches. So someone asked him, what's the size of the holes in your fishing net? And he said, two inches. So, of course, knowing your instruments, knowing the size of the holes in your fishing net allows you to make reliable statements. It's not a law of nature. It's just that some of the fish went through the holes. That's why we need to have a, a set of instruments that we fully understand, not a jittery camera in the cockpit of a fighter jet. You know, that's not something that you know exactly what it did during the flight and not relying on humans as detectors. That's the other thing, you know, throughout history, humans were testifying various things that they saw. That cannot be sufficient for a scientific publication. You know, we want to bring this subject to the mainstream of science. And the way to do that is to use instruments that provide quantitative data and uh, will convince uh, the mainstream of science that, you know, first of all, there are objects whose nature is unusual. And second, we want to clarify what these objects are. And, uh, you know, for that, we need to get a high-resolution image of some of these objects and to track their trajectory and, and see if that can be mimicked by any human-made technologies. And, of course, you know, if it ends up being a bird that we see, then it you know, a high-resolution image of a bird would not be of interest to me. I will be glad to give it to a zoologist that will study. If it turns out to be a drone that is made in a foreign country, that would be of interest to some uh, people in Washington, D.C. Again, I'm happy to transfer it automatically to them because it's as boring as a bird is, as far as I'm concerned. 
But if it's something else, you know, even if it's an unusual atmospheric phenomena, that's of value for science. And that's what we will try to find. And I can get into the details of what kind of instruments we hope to put together and what kind of um, uh, approach we're taking. About that, what of radar? Will you be using a radar component with these instruments? Okay, so first of all, let me say the Galileo project has two branches. One is focused on identifying objects like Oumuamua, that was very weird. It didn't look like a comet or an asteroid that we've seen before in the solar system. It was the first interstellar object that was spotted near Earth in 2017. And um, we knew that it came from outside the solar system because it moved too fast relative to the sun. And the hope is that future surveys of the sky will find more objects like Oumuamua that are weird, that behave, that have anomalies that do not look like a comet or an asteroid. And then we hope to, de- uh, to design a space mission that will bring a camera close to such an object and take a close-up photograph because a picture is worth a thousand words or in my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book, Extraterrestrial. I wouldn't need to write the book if we had a high-resolution image. And also study such an object in great detail, try to figure out the composition of the surface of the object, the reflectance of the object, the way it looks and moves and being pushed away from the sun, if it is. So everything that we can get with instrumentation that is not too expensive is part of the that branch of the Galileo project. And the second branch is identifying the nature of unidentified aerial phenomena. Those objects that were listed, there were 143 of them, in the report from the Director of National Intelligence to Congress on the 25th of June. And uh, we want to figure out what these objects are because apparently the government uh, was unable to do that. And these objects were seen by multiple instruments. And we, I should say that the public uh, is uh, aware only of the tip of the iceberg probably because there is a lot of data that must be classified. I haven't seen it. I don't want to see it so that my hands as a scientist will not be tied. As I said before, the Galileo project is about new data that will be available and open to the public, collected by instruments that we get off the shelf. The classified data was derived from classified instruments, and that's why it's classified. It's not so much that the data itself is a concern to the government uh, in terms of uh, releasing it. It's more that it would reveal the nature of the sensors that were used to collect it, which are classified. So we are basically uh, solving that problem by buying off-the-shelf instruments, looking at the sky, which is not classified, by the way, because astronomers were looking at the sky for a long time. And the difference from astronomers is that in this project, the Galileo project, we will track objects moving close to us across the sky. Whereas if a bird flies above an astronomical observatory, the the astronomers just ignore it. We will track it. And we will look at the entire sky all the time. We will not look at a very narrow patch of the sky the way astronomers do routinely. So when you ask astronomers and they say, oh, we haven't seen anything unusual. You know, that's, that's because the strategy for following objects that are nearby was not tuned for this purpose. They were not able to track rare objects that are flying nearby. 
and we are designing instruments for that purpose for the first time. And the Galileo project is the first team of scientists, of astronomers. We have almost 100 people by now in the project that came together and are funded to build telescope systems that would accomplish this task, you know, scientifically. collecting scientific quality data. It's, we're not talking about cell phone data or, you know, which is always fuzzy because the aperture on a cell phone is small. So I was asked, for example, at Harvard by the administration whether this uh, activity is part of my day job as an astronomer. And I thought about it and said, uh, yes, I do think so because we are collecting data with telescopes and interpreting it. And that's what astronomers do. That's what I did for decades. And the only difference is that these objects are nearby, they are close to us, but there is no limit to how close an object can be for it to be of astronomical interest. We look at the sun, we look at meteors, we look at asteroids, we look at comets, you know, these are nearby objects. And as long as they give us information, potentially, about something far away, that's a fair game and that's part of my day job. And the administrators agree with that. So. I'm, you know, I have a fund that uh, is uh, uh, thanks to the uh, donations of individuals. Uh, by now, we have uh, almost two million dollars in it. Um, the project started uh, just a few months ago, and um, th- there are commitments for more funds from some individuals that are interested in, in giving us more. And my hope is to get 10 times more than that, uh, the level of tens of millions. Of course, if we want to launch a space mission, that would require tens of millions to maybe hundreds of millions, depending on how ambitious we are. And for that, I hope to collaborate with either NASA or SpaceX or Blue Origins, just because we will learn something new if we weren't after interstellar objects, you know, even if those objects are nitrogen icebergs, a proposal that was made, or hydrogen iceberg, another proposal that was made by astronomers, or a dust bunny, a third proposal that was made by astronomers, even if it's of natural origin of this type, something that we've never seen before, which was all the proposals that were made were something that we've never seen before, we will learn something new by imaging it, figuring out that there are nurseries of these objects that we've never imagined, even if they are natural. So my point is, it's a win-win proposition. If we invest this money, we will learn something new, even if the origin is natural. And by the way, just recently, there was the Astro 2020 Decadal Survey. And in it, there are projects that cost more than that, like half a billion dollars to search for the polarization pattern of the cosmic microwave background that represents gravitational waves from the early universe. Now, so far, there are only upper limits on that. And we will invest half a billion dollars if if, uh, we follow that path in a search for something that we may not find. We don't know if we will find it because so far we haven't found it. And my point is, we're investing half a billion dollars in a search for something that we don't know exists. And at the same time, you know, if we were to do this search for interstellar objects and getting more information about them, we know that they exist. We found one. in 2017 that doesn't look like an asteroid or a comet that we've seen before. So we are likely to find more. And by investing even less money, we will learn something new for sure. 
And I think it's a win-win proposition. And I very much hope to partner with uh, an organization that can fund the space uh, mission for that purpose. In 2016, I woke up one day and said to myself, I need a YouTube channel. I expected a subscriber, which I'd have made videos for often. Clearly, I underestimated that number. Then three years ago, I asked many of you to come along and enjoy a new experience, Event Horizon. And since then, we've had amazing conversations with everyone from X to Z. Now I'm proud to announce the next steps for the show. But before I do, I'm a YouTuber, and this content will always be freely available here and nothing changes. But people have asked for other listening options, particularly as an audio-only podcast. Well, it's here. We are expanding Event Horizon and my channel to multiple podcast platforms, namely Apple and Spotify, and YouTube memberships, to give you more ways to enjoy all of my content. Now let me be clear, we will always be on YouTube with new episodes released every Thursday, and the usual videos on the JMG channel, nothing there changes. These other platforms include Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as any podcast app that supports secure RSS feeds and the new YouTube membership, which gives you the same access. For $5 a month, you get early access to new ad-free episodes, usually weeks early. You'll get the full audio archive of both channels, of Horizon and my original channel, as well as bonus podcast-only episodes and special sleep-focused tracks. And for those asking about audiobooks, premieres of my audiobooks will be on there first, but will eventually premiere here on YouTube for free as well as well as me reading other books and short stories. Imagine if I read Frankenstein. Or how about this quote? Speak not to me of blasphemy, man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. Look ye, Starbuck. All visible objects are but as pasteboard masks. Some inscrutable yet reasoning thing puts forth the molding of their features. The white whale tasks me. He heaps me. Yet he is but a mask. Tis the thing behind the mask I chiefly hate, the malignant thing that has plagued mankind since time began, the one thing that maws and mutilates our race, not killing us outright, but letting us live on with half a heart and half a lung. John, that was Gregory Peck, not Melville. And don't want the background music? You can choose between music and non-music versions of Event Horizon. Though not GMG as I had no idea I'd be successful on YouTube and didn't save the original audio files. Of course you didn't, John. You humans don't often anticipate future developments. Oh, and I almost forgot. There's going to be something new and exclusive on the service. How about an entirely new show hosted by the one and only Erin Knight? She sounds uncannily like Anna, which I'm hoping distracts Anna enough to forget about my kale diet and I can get back to cheeseburgers for a while. That's right, Erin is going to host a new show, the Accretion Disc. And guess what, John? You're the first guest. I don't know how to be a guest. What are we going to talk about? Oh, I don't know. Probably your book. If you join now, you get immediate early ad-free access to a new interview with SETI co-founder Jill Tarter, as well as the first bonus podcast episode with a surprise guest. And the first 100 to sign up also will get a free PDF copy of my book, The Salvagers. Sign up now by clicking the links below to your platform of choice. If you would like some help or how to sign up on one of these available apps, click on the chapters below and Anna can walk you through it. 
To use a podcast app other than Spotify or Apple, you can do so by signing up one time on Spotify and copying the secure RSS feed into the app of your choice. Anna can help you with all of this by following her walkthroughs in this video. Thank you for coming aboard this new journey, but remember, nothing here on YouTube changes. You'll get the same content you always have. And actually even more, since I'll be releasing more frequently these days. By signing up as a member, I will be able to provide ad-free podcasts which will allow me to focus on writing new scripts and interviewing more amazing guests here on YouTube. Thanks for listening and thank you for being a part of this ever-growing universe in which we live. Who the f*** is Aaron Knight anyway? What? No infighting. To sign up on Spotify on your browser, click the link below for Anchor. Fill out your information and follow the prompts. Accept the terms and sign into Spotify or copy your private RSS feed and paste it into any apps that support secure RSS feeds. If you're on mobile for Spotify, follow the same steps. Click the link below for Anchor and follow the sign-up prompts and connect to your Spotify account. You can copy your private RSS feed on mobile and paste it into any app that supports secure RSS feeds. To sign up on Apple Podcasts, click the link below and follow the prompts until you open the show in the Apple Podcasts app. Once there, click Try John Michael Godier free. Double-click or do whatever your phone's screen prompt says to sign up through Apple. And that's it. You now have the show on Apple. To join on YouTube, click Join, next to where you've already clicked Subscribe. You've clicked Subscribe, haven't you? Once you hit Join, follow the prompts from YouTube to sign up and get immediate access to the same podcast bonus features and early ad-free audio episodes. Thank you for your continued support. We should get into responsibility and the question surrounding that. If we have poo-pooed and ignored and downplayed the presence of an alien civilization in our atmosphere with us for the last 70 years, and it turns out that Galileo finds compelling evidence, we won't call it extraordinary, we'll simply say compelling evidence, of the presence of an alien civilization on this planet with us, then a ball has been dropped bigger than any in history because it could simply be that if that's the case, then we have to start looking at Fermi paradox solutions like the zoo hypothesis or that they're here to police us and keep us from developing certain technologies and things like that. So to find such a thing or even find a hint of such a thing all of the awards and all of that, the Nobel Prizes get melted down because we have dropped the ball on an unbelievable scale if the UAP are of alien origin or even just something we haven't thought of yet, whatever uh, they may be. I should first say that the reports of the past may be a mixed bag. There may be, you know, maybe most of them have some mundane explanations, but that's not really the point. It's sufficient to have one unusual object of extraterrestrial technological origin for it to, to have major implications for our future. And we have a subgroup within the Galileo project that uh, is discussing the societal implications. Currently, we are not prepared to respond to that. You know, the fundamental question is what is the intent of any equipment that we find? And 
my thinking is that the biological creatures like ourselves are not really designed to survive in space you know we were selected by Darwinian evolution to live on the surface of earth uh, and if we go to space within a year or a few years unprotected then our brain will be damaged uh, uh, at a very high level from cosmic rays that will impact us and we just wouldn't survive and just protecting us uh, is a major task moreover the travel between stars will take you know if, if we use uh, existing chemical rockets will take um, uh, 50,000 years to the nearest star and much more than that millions of years to other stars and you know we will have to go through many generations of uh, people on any spacecraft that we send so I don't think biological creatures are really suitable for space travel between stars and the solution is obvious we are now developing artificial intelligence systems uh, that drive cars within a decade they will outsmart us in many ways and you can imagine sending AI astronauts to space that means sending a system that is autonomous doesn't need any guidance from us as if we are sending our technological kids I mean we can train them at an early phase just like we we educate our kids at a young age and then you send them to the world and they learn from experience in the case of AI systems machine learning and then you just provide them with your guiding principles with a blueprint of how you want them to behave and what goals you want them to achieve and you hope for the best you know with kids you don't always get what you want sometimes they do things that you you do not approve and the same will happen with AI systems but the idea is since they are made of electronics they they could survive in space for millions or billions of years so AI astronauts the way I see it is really the future because also the communication across interstellar distances takes a long time you cannot ask them to wait for guidance from the senders and so if we can imagine sending AI astronauts that will be autonomous to interstellar distances perhaps another civilization that is slightly more mature than we are technologically have done that already and if you equip those systems with 3d printing they could in principle replicate themselves using the raw materials they find on other planets and then you get to a situation where you can fill up the entire Milky Way galaxy with probes that have AI systems on them within a billion years and most of the stars in the Milky Way formed billions of years before the Sun so the fundamental question is do we live in a reality that includes those probes near us or not and if these probes are small we wouldn't have detected them easily and so the only way to find out is by searching the sky and that's what the Galileo project aims to do but if I had to guess I would think that we're dealing with AI systems if they are intelligent and of course to interpret their intent we might need our own AI systems and it's sort of like relying on your kids to figure out the meaning of content that you find on the internet because they're more computer savvy so we will use our own AI systems to interpret their AI systems and they might outsmart us and I'm just 
hopeful that we will not be in a situation similar to the Trojan horse story where the citizens of Troy were happy to bring in the Trojan horse into their city and we all know the consequences. That's astonishing. Now we would have to, in order to interpret an alien artificial intelligence within our star system with us, we may have to invent our own artificial intelligence in order to understand the alien artificial intelligence. But that gets scary because what if our artificial intelligence sympathizes with the alien and not us? <laughs> or, or, it, or, it, or it launches itself into space, figures out a way to do that, and goes and joins the alien artificial intelligence and they just go off into the <laughs> galaxy together and we never know the answer to anything. Well, it's just... like it's just like having your kids marry someone and living home. You know, that's uh, I wouldn't worry too much about it. But I'm primarily frustrated by the response of the scientific community to this subject. But I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic because I think that in the not too distant future, AI systems will start analyzing scientific data. And when you start having AI scientists replace human scientists, then I'm much more hopeful because they will not be necessarily swayed by their prejudice, by their arrogance, by their ego. They would, if they see an object that does, does not share the qualities of comets or asteroids like Oumuamua, but shares the qualities of 2020 SO that is an artificial object that we produce, a rocket booster that we produce, they would say, that's interesting. Look, there is an object in the sky that behaves like 2020 SO that we produced, but doesn't look like comets or asteroids we have seen before. Therefore, it could be artificial in origin. Let's collect more data. That's the response I would expect from an AI system that looks objectively at the data without prejudice. Instead, what do I hear from my colleagues? A colleague of mine that worked on rocks in the solar system for decades heard about Oumuamua, and the first thing he said was, Oumuamua is so weird, I wish it never existed. And that shows to you the weakness of human nature. But if an AI system would look at the same data, I'm much more hopeful. So when science will be handled by AI systems, I very much hope that it it, its rate of discoveries will be advanced. And I participated in a forum with a, re a relatively young person who said that he is quite worried about the future use of AI systems because they may behave in ways that we do not approve. They may deviate from what we hope. And I said to him, well, you know, I raised two daughters. You are speaking just like someone who didn't have kids because when you raise your kids, you never, you, you never have a guarantee that they will behave the way you want them to behave. You are just trying to educate them at a young age and then send them to the world. And of course, in some cases, they don't do the right things, you know. But you should be, we should be relaxed about these technological kids of ours, which I call AI systems. We should just try to educate them well early on in their, in their evolution and, and then send them off to the world. And I'm hopeful. Just like I'm hopeful about the young generation of today, even though they do things that are different from the things we did when we were at their age, I always think that they would do better than us. And the same is true about AI systems being scientists, 
being astronauts. And I have no problem whatsoever thinking about a future in which we send technological monuments into the universe that will carry the flame of our existence. And these would be AI systems that will go places. Just to give you a, a, an example to contrast that with what we did so far. So far, for example, we sent the New Horizons spacecraft to Pluto. And on the spacecraft, we put 30 grams of ashes from the body of Clyde Tumbaugh, who discovered Pluto, to commemorate his discovery. So to celebrate the person, what we did is take his DNA and burn it up and put the ashes on the spacecraft. Now, the ashes are no different from cigarette ashes. They carry no genetic information whatsoever. And we put it to celebrate that person. If an extraterrestrial finds this, they would laugh at our primitive ritual of burning up the information about a person that we want to commemorate. That makes no scientific sense whatsoever. They cannot reconstruct Clyde Tambaugh from these ashes. If we wanted to maintain some memory of Clyde Tambaugh, we would put his DNA in electronic form on the spacecraft, or we would put a stem cell on the spacecraft. And uh, I asked the principal investigator of the New Horizons pro program, uh, Alan Stern, who is a member of the Galileo project about it. And it said, he said that uh, putting a stem cell on New Horizons would have been a bureaucratic nightmare in NASA. But nevertheless, my point is, it would have been better to put an electronic record of Clyde Tambaugh on the spacecraft. Now, my hope is, you know, in order not to embarrass ourselves uh, by the extraterrestrials finding New Horizons, first, not to give them a bad impression at first sight, we should send a spacecraft that moves faster than New Horizons, that will catch up with it and, and go farther than New Horizons, that um, will carry, for example, an AI astronaut. And then, they will think good things about it and say, oh, well, they seem to be like an intelligent species out there on Earth before they get the ashes delivered to them. Perhaps, I think somewhere, somewhere in someone's closet, as I recall, there sits Einstein's brain. And so if we were going to send somebody, a representative of humanity's DNA out, perhaps it should be Einstein. Any thoughts on that? I would be happy with that uh, choice. But as I said, my hope is with the future. I always uh, think that the future can be better than the past. So even though we are very proud of Einstein, my guess is that in the future we will have an AI scientist that would do better than Einstein in the sense of using an unprecedented amount of information that Einstein's brain was not able to digest. Using that and finding correlations and patterns in the huge data set that uh, provide us with a new law of nature or a new understanding of reality. Now, that's something that AI systems might be able to do that humans were never able to do because they cannot process such a huge amount of data in their brains. So my hope is that in the future, we will have a super Einstein AI system, and it would make more sense to send that on a spacecraft, only for the reason that not 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 to brag about our accomplishment, but also to to sort of send an image of 
what we have here on earth that is flattering to us that that implies that we existed and we achieved an important milestone that it's not just the biology that came out of a soup of chemicals on one habitable planet out of so many you know we we created a completely new thing out of the materials we found on this earth that exceeds our abilities that can do better than any human and to me you know that that would be the best monument that we can send to space you know at harvard university i see very often statues or paintings of past presidents or deans or important people that wanted to preserve a physical image of the way they looked during their life as if that would signify some something important and will maintain their longevity you know maintain their memory that all makes very little sense because you know within a billion years the sun um, will uh, uh, boil off all the oceans on earth and burn up the surface of earth so all of these monuments will go away and probably even earlier than that and if you wanted a monument that lasts for billions of years that outlasts the sun you want to send an ai system into space that will travel between stars and that makes much more sense another thing that doesn't make sense is bragging you know showing off in space is an oxymoron what um, some wealthy individuals did recently by lifting their body uh, by 1% of the earth radius using their wealth you know that makes very little sense you can't be proud of that that's not something to brag about because the size of the universe is 10 to the power 19 times bigger than the radius of the earth so you are lifting your body by 1% of the earth radius that's not a great accomplishment you know that's nothing to be proud of if you were to send an ai system across the galaxy that would be an impressive feat and given that we have so much time left in this universe the universe is, is still young and given that we have so much time there is the option too of intergalactic proliferation of information you might say by ai and a computer does not care about the passage of time nor does it seem likely it would care about relativistic speeds and moving into the future because it has no past it wants to go back to like a human would you know we want to go back to our family and everything but if we traveled at relativistic speeds we wouldn't be able to do that because we would be in the future but a machine doesn't care and neither does it uh, just the passage of time you know a machine that can self repair and keep itself going can spend 100,000 years crossing you know one quarter of the galaxy or something like that it's only 100,000 light years across and we when you look at those vast time scales everything shrinks at least according to the galaxy right so yeah. Yeah. again that is an advantage of the machine over the human and that it can live indefinitely and back itself up and have multiple copies and things like that whereas we really can't and we only live 80 90 years so to us going to alpha centauri our proxima centauri to take a look you know is beyond one human lifetime but a machine say starshot these machines little machines that are being driven by sales they don't care <laughs> they don't care about the passage of time at all so there is an inherent advantage to creating a machine that can go and do your exploration for you 
and we already do that. We already do that. New Horizons and all of these were robots. And we sometimes selectively, like, we'll go to the moon and stand on it. But fundamentally, you explore it robotically because it is much, much more advantageous and easy and in some cases more capable, but although there's nothing as good as feet on the ground for exploring something. But there are some places that are just too much and too expensive. So it's, it makes sense that an alien civilization would send a machine. And that was the whole idea be, behind these ideas of John von Neumann's self-replicating probes and the Fermi paradox itself, because the galaxy is well old enough for someone to have done this. Now, this gets back to our earlier point in that when, when people throw out ideas about things not found in nature to explain Oumuamua, dust bunnies, things like that, things that we have never seen any indication could exist or survive in interstellar space. Yet the one thing is, is that in the case of an alien civilization having done it, we have an example of that ourselves. We self-prove that it's possible in the universe to have an intelligent species. So is it really that far out there to say that something could be alien-made as opposed to a nitrogen iceberg that doesn't seem likely at all to be able to survive getting blasted off its parent body? Yeah, I, I, I don't think so. I think we should consider all possibilities, put them on the table, and if we get more data, we... We learn something new no matter what, because in all cases, we will learn about nurseries of interstellar objects that we've never imagined. And just think about the implications if it turns out to be artificial. I think the problem is our ego. What the universe taught me, at least, is a sense of modesty. You know, we should be humble. And that comes in two flavors. First of all, you should not assume that you know the answer in advance. You should collect data and figure out what happens. And second, you shouldn't be jealous of your kids. In this case, technological kids. We should not think that we are the pinnacle of creation, that we are the smartest. And therefore, first of all, there are no other kid on our cosmic block that could outsmart us. And second, that we should be going to space rather than small AI systems that we produce. Because my point is, our technological kids may be better than us. And moreover, we might not be the smartest kid on the block. And the way to find out is to search for those AI systems that were sent by others, maybe billions of years ago. And uh, just think about the Perseverance rover. It's currently on the surface of Mars, seeking evidence for microbial life in the past of Mars. And of course, if we find uh, primitive life, we would have no problem with it because we are more intelligent than it. And uh, we would feel proud of ourselves. You know, we found something new, and, but it doesn't really threaten our ego. But imagine the same rover bumping against the wreckage of a spaceship that represents technologies that we do not possess. That would be a blow to our ego if we find that. And my point is, we would much rather, if you ask most scientists, they would much rather not confront that situation. Because if you look at physics over the past century, by doing laboratory experiments, we discovered the laws that control the behavior of elementary particles, like electrons, atoms. These, these particles are just slaves to the laws of nature. They do exactly what 
the laws tell them to do. And we found these laws of physics that gives us a boost to our ego because not only we understand how these particles are behaving, so that's uh, that shows that we are very intelligent, but also these particles have no free will. If someone tried to formulate an equation that will forecast what we will do in the future and we knew about this forecast, we would behave differently. We would violate the prediction of that equation. So we feel that we are superior relative to these atoms and electrons because we are able to decide. We have some sense of free will, some consciousness that allows us to decide in a way that is not necessarily predictable. Uh, and so doing physics is a boost to our ego in two ways. And then we also find microbes, we feel superior relative to them because we are much more intelligent. We also feel superior relative to animals. You know, we eat them, we put them in cages. We feel superior relative to them because we feel that we are much more intelligent. And the next level is that some humans try to feel superior relative to other humans. You find that throughout human history, and that's the worst disease. Because if you look at the Second World War, uh, the Nazi regime triggered the death of 75 million people. That was 3% of the world population in 1940. It's 20 times more than the number of deaths triggered by COVID-19. And that was just the result of a group of people trying to feel superior relative to other people. So what you find is that the ego plays a central role in human activities, including in the academic community, including in science, which is very unfortunate because in the context of science, we are missing on discoveries as a result of that by people pretending to be experts, ridiculing any discussions on things that they don't know the answer to, and dismissing anomalies because anomalies raise doubt about their knowledge. And this is not the way that science should be handled. And my hope is that AI scientists would do better. But to run a scenario by you, and this is where it gets scary. If we find that this civilization that has sent a robotic entity across space-time to get here, and went through all of that trouble, there must be a motive to do that. Now, this could be something so simple as science. They, you know, they, they're curious. You know, they're, they're anthropologists. They, they're like, well, we see evidence of, of an advanced biosphere on this planet, so we're going to send something there. You know, it's starting to exhibit weird oxygen levels and things like that, but maybe eventually, and perhaps it's the rule in the universe, that that produces a civilization. So they just put a monitoring probe to simply learn. But it could also be something more nefarious. And it could be that the moment you create that AI to try to figure out the AI that's sitting in your solar system, you've committed a crime according to the laws of the civilizations of the galaxy that they have agreed on. So you have a police action scenario where the whole presence of this thing is to monitor but not have contact until you get its attention, just like the police. You know, you sit on your porch, the police pass by, but the moment you try to steal your neighbor's barbecue, it intervenes. So if we were in that situation where it's 
it actually serves some sort of function like that. And it is far superior to us technologically. That means the zoo hypothesis is automatically the solution to the Fermi paradox. Does Do you fear that or do you say, we're nowhere near close enough to even know if that's the case and we should just see what comes because it's reality, whatever it is. Right. Do you see that or do you think, and, and again, that deep-seated fear, do you think people fear this idea of a more advanced civilization being that close? Yeah, so I wrote an essay about that uh, in Medium uh, recently uh, about the protocol and for dealing with a discovery of let's say AI systems nearby and you know we don't know their intent and it's similar to cracking uh, the Enigma code uh, for example during the Second World War by Alan Turing and you know it may be a task uh, of linguists of AI systems figuring out the intent of those but my approach is we should first approach it in a passive way just collecting information about those objects in a passive way, not uh, trying to engage with them, just seeing what kind of information they are seeking. How do they respond to human actions on, on the globe? And then we ha need to have a discussion whether to engage with them, whether to communicate, whether to do something. And of course, that would have to weigh in all the implications of engage engagement. And But I do think the first approach should be passive. And Indeed, the Galileo project will use only passive uh, sensors. We will not transmit even radio waves. We will not uh, do the standard radar uh, search. Um, so we will have uh, an optical telescope uh, that looks at the entire sky with a fisheye camera. We will have uh, infrared sensors that cover the entire sky all the time. And we will have radio sensors that detect the, any radio transmission or any reflection of uh, radio waves that exist otherwise of uh, objects of interest. And an audio system that detects uh, any sound waves coming from these objects as they move in the atmosphere. So all of this will be collected in a passive way uh, without any without sending any, anything in the direction of the objects of interest. And I think that should be the first approach. And of course, what we do afterwards should be an international matter. It's not a, a matter of national security if the label doesn't imply that these objects were made here on Earth or if they behave in ways that we cannot reproduce with our technologies. So um, this is a very important uh, question that you, you brought up, uh, but I think we first need to find <laughs> that such things exist and understand what they're doing uh, or at least how do they, what kind of information they're seeking, where are they and what kind of response they have to what we do here on earth, unrelated to them. And um, then we can discuss it and make a decision. It has to be decided uh, by an international forum. But that in itself could have a benefit because Ronald Reagan once pointed this out. And as I recall, one anecdote, I don't know if it's true or not, but he asked Gorbachev, if the United States got attacked by an alien civilization would the Soviet Union back us? And he said, no doubt about it. So you have, when you have a global security threat, then hopefully everybody comes together and starts putting aside some differences. And I, right. think, I think that's one thing that we could say with certainty that we would do. If we had an outside threat, we would suddenly become the human species and it, we, we would slow down on the petty squabbling of countries. Do you think that's, real, that's the case? Well, I'm an optimist and um, 
my hope is that um, if we find that an advanced civilization is out there that is more advanced and we are more intelligent than we are, that there is a smarter kid on the block, then all of the small differences between us will become uh, meaningless. And um, trying to feel superior relative to each other, to other humans, would make, make very little sense. The, the Nazi doctrine will make very little sense. Here is a civilization that far more advanced than us. My hope is we will treat each other with respect as equal members of the human species. That will be the first effect. So the first effect will be on how the, we deal with each other within the human population. And then, of course, there is the question of how to communicate with them. And my view is we will learn from them because they might have answers to questions to which we, we don't have an answer. For example, we don't know what happened before the Big Bang. We don't know what the dark matter is. We don't know what's inside a black hole. So to give you an example in the context of the Big Bang, of course, there are religious uh, scripts that say the universe was created by some divine entity. And then there are scientific ideas, such as that the universe was created out of nothing from a fluctuation of the vacuum, or that it was, um, it's a cyclic universe. There was an initial phase where it contracted, and then there was a bounce and it expanded and it will contract again and expand again in many cycles, infinite number of cycles. And there is another possibility that I pointed out in a Scientific American essay recently, and that is, it's possible that once we develop an understanding of how to unify quantum mechanics and gravity, we will understand how to make a baby universe in the laboratory. And it's possible that our universe was created in the laboratory of an advanced scientific culture. And in that case, if that culture created our universe. And in our universe, there is what I call a type A civilization of that quality that can create baby universes. It could lead to another universe being created and you can have multiple generations, one after the other, having babies that, that make new babies and so forth, just like humans, you know, just like a, a chicken lays an egg and out of the egg uh, hatches a, a chicken and so forth, and you can go through that those cycles indefinitely. So it's an interesting possibility that perhaps our universe was created in the laboratory of an advanced civilization. And in that case, what we call God in religious scripts is actually an advanced scientific civilization. So the, the two concepts, uh, one of which is religious and the other, which is a unification of quantum mechanics and gravity in the context of the future of science, the two may come together. It's true that uh, someone created the universe, but it was done in the laboratory of an advanced scientific culture. And of course, the way to find out is if we ever meet such a culture, which I call type A civilization, you see, we are type C because we are just harvesting sunlight, you know, whatever nature gave us, whatever the astrophysical environment gave us, we're using it. And in fact, we, we might be even called type D civilization because we are destroying our habitat. We don't preserve our climate. So our grade is somewhere between C and D, I would say. And then you can imagine a type B civilization that creates a platform that makes it independent of its host star. So it can create anywhere. It doesn't need the host star in order to survive. So it has a nuclear reactor that makes its own 
uh, energy and, and, and maintains a habitat that that civilization can live in, irrespective of whether it's next to a star. So that's type B that is independent of the astrophysical circumstances. And then type A is a civilization that can create the conditions that led to its existence, including creating a baby universe in the laboratory. Now, my last question for you, Dr. Loeb, is this. Now, you're going to appear with Bill Nelson soon at a uh, presentation, and there's all kinds of talk by by Nelson, but also many others. You know, the SETI Institute is putting on a uh, on a forum soon regarding whether UAP are worthy of scientific attention and things like that. Now, you once told me early on that you were going to throw yourself on the barbed wire regarding this question, and like a soldier in the Israeli army, you were going to open the way for others to, to push through. Do you think that the indications now are is that you were successful because there are more people talking about it than there ever was before. So the key is not people. As I said, I don't care how many likes I have on Twitter and I don't use humans as detectors because humans are often uh, uh, motivated by other reasons. You know, they are motivated by their ego. They, they uh, have wishful thinking. They, they do not always report what is right. And um, the way to figure out what's, what reality is like is to use instruments that provide us with quantitative information. And that's the scientific method that Galileo Galilei founded, that philosophers at his time resisted because they thought they have a good idea about the sun moving around the earth. And all of modern science was based on Galileo's approach, even though he was put in house arrest at the time. And today he would have been canceled on social media. So my point is, if we follow the scientific method that led to all the advances that we benefit from in our daily lives, you know, including the navigation systems in our cell phones, you know, that those rely on Einstein's general theory of relativity, which was verified through observations of the universe, and uh, the, the solar system and many other, and, and most recently gravitational waves from black holes that collide at the edge of the universe, and uh, as well as uh, an image of the shadow of a black hole. So the point is, we can learn about reality, new things, if we pay attention to evidence rather than to our prejudice, rather than to our notions. And it's a learning experience. And the key for us to learn is to stay modest and recognize the fact that everything we know is just an island in an ocean of ignorance. So if it's not about us showing off that we are smart, then instead of being preoccupied with extra dimensions, the string theory landscape, the multiverse, all of these ideas that are constructed such that whoever writes about them appears to be smart, you know, just... Let's forget about those. You know, these ideas have no verification, have no substantiation by experimental data. Instead, let's work on things, on questions that we can address by collecting more evidence, such as other objects that were manufactured by advanced technological civilizations within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. This is a question that we can address with hundreds of millions of dollars, get an, a, a clear answer to uh, at least 
in terms of explaining objects that we already found that do not resemble rocks. And if we engage in that, there would be much more excitement about science. Young people are really excited about it. They get thousands of emails every week from people that would like to engage in this question, and some of which are worried about the prospects, if they are scientists, about the prospects for their career. And I also get a lot of donations from individuals that feel that this is an inspiring question, an inspiring vision that uh, humanity should pursue. So my point is, we will bring more funding to science and we will engage the public in a more meaningful way if we were to pursue this question. And by the way, it will have a huge impact on our future. Well, it's worth noting that the public is far more interested in the question of alien life than most scientists are these days. Thank you again, Dr. Lowe, for appearing with us. We're out of time, but we'll do this again sometime soon as the Galileo Project forms up. Thank you so much, and I, I, I will be glad to report about anything we find. Yep. Good luck. Thanks for listening. I am Futurist and Science Fiction John. Author. Wrong channel. No, it's not. Thanks for listening. I am futurist and science fiction author John Michael Godier, currently hosting Event Horizon and wondering where Anna actually came from. One day I had a tablet computer, the next I had a boss. Very disturbing. Be sure. And that's enough of that. YouTuber forever. Like, subscribe, and hit the bell. Sell out. What? <laughs>